Well, I want to welcome you to worship, whether you're here with us live in the room or you're watching this on video later. We're so glad that you're joining us. So right before New Year's, I started to think about maybe some changes I would like to make in myself before uh, the new year came and what I wanted to kind of do in 2020. And one of the first things that came to mind was I knew that I needed to get in better shape. I guess more specifically, I need uh, to develop at least some muscles. And part of that reason for that is because of a few people on staff. So maybe you've met Greg, our guest experience director. Uh, he could basically bench press me, all right? So, you know, he's kind of hard to keep up with. And then Pastor Jason, I don't know if you've seen his tattoo, but on his bicep, he's got a huge lion. And I was thinking, you know, if I would do something similar, I'd probably get like half a house cat or something like that. So I decided, all right, I want to get in shape. I want to build some more muscle. And my wife's been going to a gym for about six months and absolutely loves it. So I went for a trial week right after January 1st and started to get into it. And then they challenged me to join a 10-week uh, challenge where we set some goals and you try to meet those goals and there's some prizes along the way. So finally, I'm like, all right, I'm in for the 10-week challenge. So orientation came about a, year, uh, a week and a half ago. And so we showed up and, you know, they did all sorts of measurements and how many push-ups can we do in a minute and how many sit-ups can we do. But then came the final piece of orientation, and it was the before picture. Now, don't worry, I'm not going to show you the picture and ruin your day, all right? But we had to take a picture of what it was like at the beginning of the challenge. And of course, the reason for that is in 10 weeks, they want to take another picture and we can put them together and we can say, look at the progress that we've made. You know, look at all the positive things that have happened because of all we've done. Now, the reason I share that story is tonight we're going to dig into the first part of Ephesians chapter 2. We're in a series called This Is Us, where we're looking at this letter that Paul wrote to the church in Ephesus. But what we're going to see in the beginning of chapter 2 of Ephesians is that Paul is giving us a before and after picture of being in Christ. He wants us to understand better of what we were like before Jesus came into our life, and then he wants to really help us understand what we are to look like after Jesus comes into our life. And really what Paul first sets out to do is he wants to give us a diagnosis. He wants to diagnose the human condition. You know, that's really the essence of the before picture. But then he wants to give us a remedy for what ails us, and then he wants to help us understand what that means for today. And that's our after picture. So first, Paul starts with the diagnosis, and he does this in three ways. So again, we're in Ephesians chapter 2, starting with verse 1. If you have a Bible, I'd invite you to turn in there. If you have the YouVersion app on your phone or your tablet, Ephesians chapter 2, verse 1. So the first thing Paul does is start with our true condition. Before we were in Christ, he says we were dead in our sins. All right, that's our diagnosis. Before we were in Christ, we were dead in our sins. Here's how he says it in verse one. He says, once you were dead because of your disobedience and your many 
sins. Now, I think the natural reaction to hearing that, though, is to start to push back, to say, you know, I'm not exactly sure I buy all that, you know, because I do a lot of nice things for other people. You know, maybe I've packed three different times with Feed My Starving Children this week, and I'm not sure I'm quite as bad as Paul is making it sound. You know, I mean, our church does so many great things. People step up to serve in all sorts of different ways. Well, then there are two words that come in that very first verse that I think oftentimes we have a problem with, we sometimes get defensive about, we can even be in denial about. The first word is you. See, Paul is talking about each of us personally, individually. See, this isn't a diagnosis of other people. It's not just a diagnosis of bad people. This is about you and it's about me. Now, I think we're typically okay acknowledging that there are evil and bad people in the world. I mean, we tell our kids, don't talk to strangers. We put locks on our houses. We lock our car doors because there are bad people out there. And we tend to put people in these boxes. You know, there's the good people here and the bad people here. And sometimes, you know, in that box of bad people, we might have those who are from a different culture. It might be people who don't agree with us politically. It might be people who live different lifestyles than we're comfortable with. Well, churches are also notoriously good at putting people into boxes, deciding who's in and who's out, and judging other people. Now, oftentimes, we give ourselves a ton of grace but we fail to extend that kind of grace to others. You know, we say, well, I've got a good reason not to show up for church every week. You know, I've got a good reason that I don't tithe my income like God asks. But all those other heathens, you know, they've got huge problems. They're bad people. Well, Paul, just in this very first verse, blows that kind of thinking out of the water. You see, there's no hierarchy of good and bad people. He says we have to start with ourselves and we have to spend some time looking in the mirror. All the badness and the evil in the world, it's not everybody else's fault. No, actually every one of us contributes to it. Every one of us is responsible for it. So now Paul has our attention, but then he says something even more shocking. He says that before we're in Christ, we're actually dead in our sin. We're dead without Christ's help. You see, this isn't just about making some mistakes. It's not just an oops along the way or being able to say, my bad, and move on. You see, sin isn't just a random choice or a random action. No, Paul says it's actually the condition of our hearts. You know, I think we're way more comfortable, though, thinking about, you know, just making mistakes along the way. But we have to notice here that Paul doesn't call us mistakers. No, he calls us sinners. And that's so much more serious. And here's the thing, according to Paul, it's not our actions or our choices that make us bad. No, we make bad choices, we do bad things, because of our very serious condition. I right, put it this way. When we act greedy or dishonest, it's not our actions that make us greedy or dishonest. 
No, it's because by nature we are greedy and dishonest. Case in point, think of a small child. No one has to convince a small child to be selfish or to be cranky or to be negative, right? What are some of the first words that small children learn? No, mine, right? And of course, they learn it from watching others, but it's also in their very heart. It's in each one of our nature. They and every single one of us is born a sinner. That is our natural condition. You see, Paul says that means we're not just sick. We're not just a little bit under the weather. No, we're actually dead in our sin. You see, there's no room for the princess bride theology saying, you know, well, I'm only mostly dead. Paul says, no, you are completely hopeless. You are completely helpless. Sin has affected every part of your life, every part of your existence. We are completely and totally dead in our sins. Well, then Paul goes further and he says, there are three big ways that we are actually enslaved before we're in Christ. And so starting in verse 2, he says, You used to live in sin, just like the rest of the world, obeying the devil, the commander of the powers in the unseen world. He is the spirit at work in the hearts of those who refuse to obey God. All of us used to live that way following the passionate desires and inclinations of our sinful nature. Now, he's saying a whole lot there, but basically he's saying there are three major ways that we are enslaved to our sin. The first is that we are enslaved to living like the rest of the world. You see, we are influenced far more than we ever want to admit by society's attitudes and habits. We're shaped by products, by advertising, and certainly by peer pressure from those around us. And of course, we need to acknowledge the world and its culture and our society are not in alignment with God's will and God's ways. And so we remain slaves to the way that the world conducts itself. But then Paul says we're also enslaved and we're being sabotaged by Satan himself. Now, some people in our world today way overestimate the influence of Satan. But then there are many of us that way underestimate his influence and impact. Satan's been defeated by Christ, yet he still tries to tempt us and to lie to us. You know, that's precisely what he did to Adam and Eve in the garden, and he's been trying to do ever since. Satan can't force us to do anything, but he can continue to try to sabotage us by tempting, by lying, by distorting the truth. Well, then Paul says there's one more way that we were enslaved before Jesus came on the scene, and that's we're enslaved to following the passions and the desires of our flesh. It's really, again, our sinful nature. 
Instead of following the will of God, we like to do whatever our body and mind says feels good or will make us happy. You know, we think we should be in control of our life. No one should be able to tell us what to do. But when we end up following our own passions and desires, it doesn't usually turn out well because we end up making harmful choices. Harmful choices to ourselves, but also harmful choices to people around us. We sin by what we do, but we also sin by what we don't do. In the end, what it comes down to is we fail to love God with our whole heart and soul and mind and strength. And we fail to love our neighbor as ourself, the things that we're commanded to do. Well, Paul says, well, maybe you don't understand still how serious this is. So then he says, before Jesus came on the scene, we were also condemned. So what he says at the end of verse three is, by our very nature, we were subject to God's anger, just like everyone else. Now in some translations, maybe the one you have, the word anger is replaced by a very stark word. It's wrath. Basically, what Paul is telling us is that we deserve God's anger, discipline, judgment, and even wrath. Now, that's so tough for us to hear because we'd prefer to think of God as kind of this friendly old man with a big white beard sitting off in a cloud somewhere. But Paul, again, wants us to understand what's at stake. He wants us to understand how serious this is. He wants us to remember what our true and real condition is. What we end up doing every day is we try to take God's place. We try to hang on to control instead of surrendering to him. We fail to obey his rules, to live up to his standards, and we seek to glorify ourselves to serve ourselves, and to lift ourselves up. And it's because of those things. We deserve God's anger. We deserve his judgment and his discipline. Well, of course, we want to argue, though, but you know, God should just be more forgiving. You know, he should just love more and be more merciful and be more graceful. But meanwhile, we're more than happy to be outraged by the behavior of other people. You know, we're perfectly all right asking God to intervene and to punish someone for how they hurt someone or how they took advantage of someone. But of course, God should forgive us though, right? I mean, because we mean well. We give ourselves the benefit of the doubt. But Paul says the truth is we deserve to be punished and we can't blame anyone except ourselves. The world isn't at fault because every one of us contributes to its evil ways. And Satan isn't at fault because he's not able to force us to do anything at all. He just tempts us. So in the end, Paul says, we deserve God's anger, his wrath, and his judgment. Now, some of you might stay fixated on that statement. And you might try to justify things or you might try to explain things away or you might try to soften it somehow. But if you do that, 
It will not only be harmful to you spiritually, it will lessen the impact of two of the greatest words that have ever been spoken together in all of history. Two words that change the game. Two words that turn everything upside down. This is the remedy for our illness. This is the cure for what's wrong with us. And those two words are but God. One minute we are dead and deserving of anger and judgment, but that's not the end of the story. Suddenly, with those two words, everything changes. There's a reason for hope, for joy even. Paul says, but God is so rich in mercy and he loved us so much. Right? The story up to this point has been pretty bleak, pretty dark, pretty hopeless. But God is so rich in mercy and he loved us so much. You see, the only way that this verse delivers all of the joy and relief and positive impact that it should is if you first understand your natural condition. If you first understand your diagnosis that you were dead in sin. You see, this is all about how much mercy God has chosen to show to you. This is about how you deserved his anger, but instead he chose to love you. There was a preacher who lived many years ago named Martin Lloyd-Jones, and he says these two words, but God, in a sense, contain the whole of the gospel. And in fact, if you read through the entire biblical narrative, these two words show up again and again and again. Remember the story of Joseph. It's a great musical about him, Technicolor Dreamcoat. Joseph was sold into slavery by his own family. And he was brought into Egypt and he was put into prison. But if you read through his story, eventually it says, but God worked it all out for good. Remember Noah. Noah and his family were floating on the ark for days with a bunch of smelly animals. The flood was over, but they didn't know what was coming next. If you read his story, it says, but God remembered Noah and saved him and his family. Remember David, King David, he was being hunted by King Saul. Saul wanted to kill him. But if you read that story, it says, but God protected David. Or how about Jonah? Jonah tried to run away from God multiple times, and he wanted to give up and just cash it in. In Jonah's story, it says, but God raised him up and gave him new life. Or if we fast forward to the New Testament, Romans 5.8 says, but God showed his great love for us by sending Christ to die for us while we were still sinners. Two words changes everything. 
But it doesn't just stop there. Paul wants us to understand what God has done for us and why he did it. So if we read on, Paul says, even though we were dead because of our sins, he gave us life when he raised Christ from the dead. It is only by God's grace that you have been saved. For he raised us from the dead along with Christ and seated us with him in the heavenly realms because we are united with Christ Jesus. Now notice when all of this happened, it was when we were still dead because of our sins. It's not because we somehow got our act together. It's not because we somehow convinced God to have mercy on us. It's while we were still fully dead that God chose to raise us up and back to life. And if that's not good enough, look at verse six. It says, we have been raised up with Christ and seated in the heavenly realms. Now, have you ever had your seat upgraded on an airplane before? It's happened just a few times to me. But it's a pretty amazing experience to go from coach where I can't even stretch my legs out at all to all of a sudden just having this luxurious seat and being weighted on with great food and beverages. But you see what Paul is saying is that upgrade is nothing compared to the upgrade we get in Christ. I mean, talk about a change in seats. We're raised up to being seated in the heavenly realm. It means in God's eyes, you already have your rightful place in heaven. We get to share everything that Christ has. We get every right and privilege that he has because he chose to trade places with us. The wages of sin is death, but Jesus died to pay our debt. And now we get all of his riches all of his status, all of his righteousness. And all of this is simply because of God's character, because of his amazing love and his amazing grace. So Paul has identified our condition. He's given us a diagnosis. But then he's shown us the remedy to that diagnosis. And now as he closes out this passage, he wants us to understand what this means for our life today. So verses eight and nine are one of the clearest and most concise explanations of the gospel in the entire Bible. These two verses are very familiar to many of you. You might have memorized them in confirmation. It might have been your baptismal verse. These are two verses that heavily impacted Martin Luther during the Reformation. And so we're going to put verses 8 and 9 up on the screen, and I want to invite you to just read through this small section with me. All right, so let's read it together. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. Paul doesn't want us to ever forget that we are saved by God's grace alone. It's a priceless gift. 
But it's a gift that didn't come cheap because it cost Jesus his life. Paul is saying, don't ever start to think that you somehow earned it or that you deserved it or that you could ever look down on anyone. He says, there's nothing for us to boast about. If we remember verse one, I mean, our true condition is that we were dead and buried. We can't ever look down on unbelievers. We can't look down on other church people and try to assess who's holier than thou. There's nothing that we have done or that we will ever do to deserve or to earn God's gift of salvation. It's a gift of his grace that we receive by faith. Such a freeing and such a wonderful truth. It's a promise that we have to keep coming back to because it it sounds too good to be true. But this is the essence of our God who will go the furthest lengths to bring us back into a saving relationship with him. But that's not even the end of the story. That's not the full after picture. There's still one more verse. So in verse 10, Paul says, for we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. So salvation is a free gift and it comes through faith, but it always produces good works. In fact, according to Paul, if you don't have good works, it calls your salvation into question. It's actually our good works, doing good to others, that validates our salvation. Because these things are an outpouring of our gratefulness for what Jesus has already done. You know, if somebody would come and try to argue, you know, I'm not going to do anything good for anyone ever, you might start to wonder, well, have you truly understood the gospel? Have you truly understood what Jesus has done for you? It's our good works that validates our salvation. You see, Paul is saying God saved us for a purpose, and he's already prepared all sorts of good things for us to do. There's people in front of us that need to be loved and cared for. There's opportunities all around us where we're uniquely positioned to make a difference, to make an impact in many people's lives. But the thing is, all of these good works have been prepared for us in advance, which I think should be incredibly comforting to us because we don't have to figure this out on our own. We're just asked to listen and to follow and to believe God is gonna work through us. He's gonna lead and guide us. He's gonna empower us. Now, I love the first part of verse 10 where he says that we are his workmanship. The word workmanship in Greek is the word poema. And it's the word that we get our English word poem from. You see, Paul is saying your life is a poem that God is writing. He's composing something in and through you that will bring him glory. You see, God has already predetermined the end of the story. 
And it's guaranteed to be beautiful, to be life-giving, to be perfect. You know, when life gets discouraging or when I feel down about my faith, I think this is such an amazing promise to remember and to claim. You are God's workmanship. Your life is a beautiful poem. You know, when you have one of those days where you wonder what good all this hard work you're doing for your family is going to be, or when you feel like your kids or your spouse are taking you for granted, or when you've tried for years to share the good news of Jesus with a friend or a family member and it seems like it's going nowhere, or when you feel like your life is meaningless or it's not counting for anything, or when you struggle where to fit in, maybe even here at church, don't be discouraged. Remember who you are. Remember who you are. God has promised that he is at work within you. He's already brought you from, life, from death to life. And now he's orchestrating a beautiful and impactful story in and through you. I mean, every day, take comfort that God is giving you the power and he's giving you the ability to do his will. All we need to do is just climb out of bed and discover the wonderful things that God will lay out before us. Now, when it comes to church, and specifically this church, Calvary, I know it's sometimes easy to get discouraged. You know, Calvary has been through many ups and downs throughout its 70-plus year history. Some of you remember not too long ago when it was double the size it is now. We also have a really compelling mission to lead people into a growing relationship with Jesus. Yet we look around at our neighborhoods and our community and there are still hundreds of thousands of people who don't know the good news of Jesus. And so it can be discouraging and it can be frustrating. But yet we can claim the promise that God has prepared good works for us. Not just good works, great works for us. And Paul says we just need to walk in that truth with confidence. So as you sit here today, if you are in Christ, if you have a personal relationship with Jesus, this is your before and after picture. But if you don't, you're not sure what you believe, if you feel hopeless and confused, I want you to know these promises are for you as well. God does have great plans for you. And he has an amazing gift waiting for you to receive. Your first step is to put your faith in Jesus. And then to get ready for an incredible adventure. Will you pray with me? Gracious God, we give you thanks for the gift of your word that's been handed down generation after generation. God, we give you thanks for these words that you inspired Paul to write. These words that give us an accurate account of who we were before you came on the scene and who we are after. 
God, help us to never forget the seriousness of our condition, that we, without you, are dead in our sins. But then help us to rejoice day after day because of the remedy that you came in the person of your son, Jesus Christ, to live and to die and to rise again so that we could have new life, so that we could have forgiveness, so that we could have hope. God, help us to live into that truth each and every day. Help us to remember that you are empowering us, you are equipping us, you are leading and guiding us to make a difference in people's lives. Help us to remember that you are writing a beautiful poem in and through us each and every day. God, help us to walk confidently in that truth. And God, we pray all these things in the powerful name of your son, Jesus, and all God's people said, amen.